Good morning. I want you to uh, imagine walking into a bookstore and there, tucked away in one of the shelves, was a little volume that caught your eye. And there on the spine, you saw the title, The Spiritual Health of Churches in the Greenbelt and College Park Areas. So you took it out and you opened it up and you you turned to the table of contents and, and there you spied chapter one. Greenbelt Community Church, Chapter 2, Aletheia Church, Chapter 3, Wallace Presbyterian Church, Chapter 4, Greenbelt Baptist Church, and you turned to Greenbelt Baptist Church, and, and there you looked, and with, with, with clear detail was the history of the church, but not only just the history, the, the strengths of the church, the programs throughout their history. But as you kept reading, you you also saw that the author clearly was portraying the weaknesses of the church. And the author actually knew some of the sins of the church. Not just the the public mistakes, but, but even some of the private sins. The things happening behind closed doors. The private actions of some of its members. Shut the book. I said, well, one, why is it here and I've never seen it? But I wonder what you would, I wonder what you would think. Would, would it cause you to change the way you came to church? Would that book and, and reading that chapter cause you to live a little bit differently in how you lived your life as a member of Greenbelt Baptist Church? Friends, I think we have that book for us, and we're going to look at that book over the next month or so, and and you can actually turn there now if you want. It's in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 2. We're going to look over the next couple of weeks at Revelation chapter 2 and and chapter 3, and as you're turning there, I I want to set the context a little bit of of what's going on here. The book of Revelation is... Well, it's a fascinating book. The genre is apocalyptic. So all that means is that it it uses a lot of Old Testament language symbolically to describe the now and the not yet. It's using highly symbolic language taken from the Old Testament to help us make sense of, of what's going on now as we look forward to the future. In other words, the book of Revelation is describing our time now in these last days and giving us hope in the intensity of these last days as we move closer and closer to the last day. I don't know if you've thought of it like this, but it's interesting that that according to the New Testament, The last days are not some kind of future, far-off, vague time that we only get glimpses at when the the summer blockbusters come out and we watch these very fascinating post-apocalyptic movies that seem to describe the last days. Now, according to the New Testament, the last days began with the coming of Christ, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. We've, according to the New Testament, been 
in these last days for at least 2,000 years. You could see this throughout the New Testament, but perhaps one of the clearest passages is in Hebrews 1, chapter 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. You know it well. In uh, uh, At many times and in many ways, our Father spoke to our uh, the God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, speaking about the Old Testament. But then in verse 2, he says, In these last days, he has perfectly spoken to us in his Son. And the New Testament writers pick up on that, that we are and have been living in the last days. Now, this is crucial to know. We want to know this as we come to the book of Revelation because what that means is that the book of Revelation isn't therefore just a book tagged on at the end of the Bible for those people who are living way off in that vague future when everything seems to go bad. It's actually a book for us. It's a book for the church. It's a book meant to be read and digested and applied to everybody living within the last 2,000 years and until that last day when Christ comes again. That becomes especially important for us as we read chapters 2 and 3. You can look there, skim quickly at chapters 2 and and chapter 3, and you'll see briefly that really the chapters are made up of, of really what are seven letters written by Jesus Christ to seven seven different local churches. So you've got Jesus writing there in the first part of chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus. And then again there in the second part, the middle of chapter 2, to the church in Smyrna. And then he writes a letter later in chapter 2 to the church of Pergamum, church of Thyatira, Sardis, church of Philadelphia, and finally to the church in Laodicea. And in each one of these churches, we get a kind of similar pattern that we'll pick up on as we keep working through each letter. First, Jesus kind of uh, introduces himself in a unique and, and very beautiful way. And then he, 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 he tells the church something that he knows about them, commends something that, that's strong in their church. But then he also wants to push them and, and convict them about some way generally in which they're struggling, something they need to repent about. And then finally, he calls them to endure and persevere in faithfulness. And we see that each one of these letters follows this pattern, but but there's something different for each church, a a new message for each localized church that he's writing to here. Now, those these are letters written for each local church, the church in Ephesus, and And though there was really a church in Smyrna, and and Jesus really did write to the very real group of people that met in Pergamum, Revelation also intends for us to read these as letters to us. In fact, I think that there's three reasons why we should read chapters 2 and 3 and apply them to Greenbelt Baptist Church here today. Firstly, as we've already noted, we've been living in these last days. So here Jesus writes to these churches in the last days. And he, he, he means for us also who are living in the same last days to say that that message is also for us. But also, if you, if you look, there's seven churches. And now we know Revelation uses symbolic language and, and it uses symbolic numbers. And perhaps one of the most symbolic numbers used throughout the book of Revelation is the number seven, right? It shows up throughout the whole book. We know what the seven, uh, the number seven means, right? On the seventh day, God rested 
And he looked back on all his work and he saw that it was perfect. It was complete. And that number is being used again throughout Revelation, even here in these seven churches, to say that that here is the complete, perfect, universal church. So not only are these seven letters to seven localized churches here at their time, but it's also for the complete, perfect church throughout all time, the universal church throughout these last days, for them and for us. Perhaps most explicitly, look there at uh, verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to the one singular church, but all the churches are meant to read this and hear. And he repeats that again there in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Or again in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Throughout each letter, he says that this isn't just for that one particular church. No, these seven churches are meant to be read by the whole complete, perfect, universal church and applied to us. So, friends, Greenbelt Baptist, here's that book in the bookstore. Here's the spiritual health of Greenbelt Baptist Church laid out for us. Right here in chapters 2 and 3. Let me read the text. Just read this first letter. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We'll pray and see what we can learn about our church from this church in Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, it will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's living and active truth. Father, we pray that you apply that truth to us by your living spirit. And Lord, we pray that it would not only be a barometer to us to show us our health and our need of more health, but Lord, that it would be life to us and it would encourage us to live and to persevere and to conquer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First thing I want us to notice about this is the way in which Jesus introduces himself to the church in Ephesus. And you can see it there in verse 1. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now commentators are a little bit confused as to why he writes to the angel, and you'll see he does that to each one of the church, the angel of the church of Smyrna, the angel of the church of Thyatira, and so on. 
The word angel could be messenger, and so perhaps he's just saying here in the original Greek to the messenger and and to the one who's going to bring this message to each localized church. But I actually think in keeping with the whole scope of, of Revelation and where angels pop up in almost every other chapter, he's actually speaking here about real angels. So what I think seems to be happening, and Greg Beal talks about this in his commentary, and I think he's just about right, is that what Jesus is doing is that he's subtly reminding the church in Ephesus, the Christian believers there, that it's not just them. That there's a spiritual reality connected to their church. There's there's help for them, heavenly help, in fact, in an angel in whom he's writing to. And each one of these churches has an angel that looks over that specific church. Now, we have to remember that in these last days, Jesus promises that if he himself was persecuted, so too would his church and his believers be persecuted. And of course, at the writing of this book, uh, probably around 9 AD, the Christian church, the Ephesian church, and, and all the churches were going through severe, intense persecution. Persecution that would, that would weigh heavy on each one of these churches. I mean, this is times where we know in church history that they were actually arresting Christians and throwing them into the Colosseum to be devoured by lions and bears. We know from church history that emperors like Nero and uh, other emperors would use Christians that they've captured and arrested, and and specifically Nero would, would burn them alive as torches to light his parties at night. Here's a subtle reminder from Jesus that the reality you see around you, the persecution that you're going through, well, that's not the full story. You have heavenly help. You have spiritual help to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Isn't it encouraging to think that if Jesus were to write to us today, he would say to the angel of the church in Greenbelt, In fact, he, I think, ups the ante here on his encouragement. He says to that angel of the church in Ephesus, Right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here again is that infamous symbolic language that Revelation is so known for. What is this language of seven stars and and, and he's walking among seven golden lampstands? Well, the principle that we always want to follow is that Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't want to just make up our own interpretation. And praise God, we actually have Scripture interpreting it for us. Look up just a couple verses before in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what's Jesus saying here? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand? He's saying that very real spiritual help that I've given to each one of the churches, to the whole universal perfect church, they are so perfectly in the control of my right hand. Uh, This is not help that you're getting from angels, and they're not sure what to do. It's It's help that actually comes right from my right hand. Even more so, 
to the seven lampstands, or I walk among the seven churches. Jesus says not only only provide spiritual help and comfort, but I'm walking among you. In the midst of your persecution, in the midst of tough times, in the midst of, of struggle, Don't think that all that you can see there, the the lion about to devour you and your family, uh, the Roman guards about to throw you into prison, that that's the only thing, that that's the only reality. I'm right there with you. Intimately involved. Intimately caring. Do you remember what Jesus said to the unconverted Saul as he was going to kill Christians? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is so intimately connected with believers that when their church is being persecuted, Jesus, who is there with them, who is one with them, counts it as persecution even against himself. He he walks among the churches. But because he walks among them, and, and, and because he's so intimate with his bride, the church, well, that means he also knows about the church. He, he knows everything about them. Uh, as we've said before, not only their outward programs, but he knows the private things about the church. He knows what's going on behind closed doors, what each church member is doing and thinking. He intimately is a part of his church. And he says that there in verse 2. This is the next thing we want to see, that that he knows their works, and he wants to commend them for their works. See that? I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I think generally there's three things here that he's trying to commend to this church in Ephesus. The first is that, well, they're a hard-working church. They're not lazy. Uh, they're, they're putting their hand to the work of the ministry. Uh, they, they have toil that he knows, and, and they have work that he can see. Uh, they're not just kind of gathering and, and not really thinking about the work of the church, not really thinking about what it means to be a church. They've got programs going on, and they're toiling hard. They're They're giving forth spiritual sweat to make this thing called church work well. And that's good, Jesus says. I know it. I commend you for it. But he also says, I know your toil and your patient endurance. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In the midst of their commitment to what's going on at church, they're doing that in the context, again, of of severe and intense persecution. And he says, in the midst of that, you're, you're enduring patiently. And what are they enduring for? What are they bearing up? For my namesake. Isn't that interesting? They're giving themselves to the work of church. And the culture around them sees it, and they don't like it, but they're not giving in. 
They're not saying that we're going to, well, we're going to change our gospel preaching and we're going to change the message of the work that we're doing in order to kind of smooth out the rough edges so that the culture around us will say, okay, we can, we can swallow that. No, no, they, they, they preach the hard things that we're sinners in need of grace. They preach the hard truths that, that God is a God who will judge evil. And they're suffering under the persecution, bearing up for Christ's namesake in and through that. They're not softening on their doctrine. And in fact, I think that's the third thing that Jesus really wants to commend them for. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot even bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Not only are they enduring persecution from an outside world that hates them, but they're enduring patiently from false teaching that's trying to sneak in within them. There are apparently those who are coming in and saying, I'm an apostle. Uh, I've got a message of God for you. So, okay, let's hear it. And they start teaching and preaching, and immediately the church knows that's not the Bible. That's not the gospel that we've heard before. Uh, The things that you're teaching is not the goodness and the truth of the Bible. That's evil. You're not an apostle, but you're a fake. Here's a church who knew their doctrine. Here's a church who was rigorous in their study of right theology. They knew and memorized their catechism questions and answers. And so when the prosperity gospel preacher came and he he tried to convince them and blind them that the gospel is really there to give you health and wealth, the church said, no, that's not the message we've received from the true apostles of Christ. When the Mormon gospel comes in and tries to convince them that Jesus was really only an angel and not fully divine, he says, well, no, our salvation is founded on the true divinity of our Savior, who is also fully man. No, that's fake. Uh, Perhaps the legalistic and and the more Roman Catholic gospel try to come in and say, well, you know, what what really pleases God is that you've got to work harder, and you've got to do this three times a day, and and you've got to go to church, and, and you've got to stop doing this. And I said, well, no, it's pretty clear Paul has told us, John's told us, Jesus himself told us that it's by faith alone we're made right with God. That's not the true gospel. Jesus commends them for going through times of persecution and not softening on their doctrine, but also holding on tightly to right doctrine to keep the church pure. They're rightly protecting the boundaries of their church and, 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 and rightly protecting the purity of the gospel so that when people come in and either live differently or teach differently from what the Bible says, they're rightly obeying Christ's word and saying, no, that's not true Christianity. And Jesus says, I know that and I like it. He says in verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Is it surprising to you that he says, which I also hate? Perhaps you've come here this morning with the idea that Jesus is that soft and tender, 
Savior who holds the soft lambs and never has a strong word to say. I encourage you to read through the rest of the book of Revelation this afternoon and see the Savior, see Jesus who comes down with a sword gritted between his teeth, the tattoos of righteousness and truth on his legs, and he brings wrath to bear upon all those who have denied the truth of his goodness and denied the truth of his words. And he says, yes, I hate all that is against me. I hate false doctrine. I hate those who work to try to deceive my sheep and to get them to buy into this false philosophy or that false religion or this cult. I love the truth. As Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. But we need to notice that he not only commends them, but he also has something against them. Look at verse 4. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now that's a striking statement. There was something, someone that they were in love with, that now seemingly they're, well, they're not so much in love with. They've abandoned that love. The phrasing is a little bit unclear. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And, and of course, the logical question to ask is, is what? What love? What love was it that you had at first? I think we have one major clue to help us understand what that is, and it, it comes from the way in which Jesus introduces himself. In fact, as we'll see as we go through each one of the letters, every introduction that Jesus gives has some way to help us understand what he says in the middle of the letter. And remember what he said about himself. He says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just think of the imagery of that symbolism. What do stars do so brilliantly at night? They shine. They give forth light. And not uncoincidentally, what do lampstands do? Well, they also shine and they give forth light. And here's Jesus saying that he holds in his right hand the angels who watch over and guard the church. And these angels are described as as light-emitting stars. And and they're to watch over the lampstands, the church. And the lampstand, the church, is a light-emitting, a a light-diffusing tool. It seems to me that what Jesus is saying here is that their, their strength, in protecting the purity of the gospel. They're they're being commended of doing the good work of being theologically rigorous and not letting anyone in to help deceive them and take them away from the light of the gospel. What that's done is it's turned them inward and they've begun to be a church that no longer is outward and light emitting. They've abandoned their first love. And so it seems to me that their first love is two-part. First, it's, it's a love of diffusing the light of the gospel to others around them. And that makes sense in persecution, doesn't it? In the midst of intense persecution, what are you really most concerned about at that time? They're not dying. In the midst of intense persecution where we're just saying the name of Jesus to others will get you thrown into the lion's den. 
You're not going to so boldly go out and, and, and joyfully and with gladness of heart and love tell everybody about the love and salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. You're concerned now with, I don't want to die so that I can support my family. Be careful, daughter. Oh, be careful, son, when you go to school and, and people ask you questions about what you do on the Lord's Day. Uh, yes, be faithful, but... but you know, just going around and talking about what we do on the Lord's Day, I want to see you tonight for dinner. You're concerned with the physical health in life. And so it makes sense that now their, their focus has turned inwards. And perhaps over time, they've, they've lost and abandoned their first love of diffusing the light of the gospel to an outward culture. You've abandoned that. Now, that's connected, no doubt, to loving Christ. Many commentators see here as they're abandoning the first love, loving Christ. And I think that's part of it, but I think mainly it's, it's, it's declaring the gospel. But that is not disconnected from loving Christ, is it not? When you first became a believer, when you first were made aware of what Christ had done for you and saving you as a sinner... How many of you can remember the joy and excitement you had when you went to your friends, when you went to your family members, and you said, I've got something new. My entire life is different right now. I recall uh, one summer in 2001, right after becoming a Christian, and I'm, oh, I am so excited. I, I'm reading the Bible now with fresh eyes, and, and, and I can't help but tell everybody about what's going on with Jesus. And do you know what he did for you? And one morning, a family relative comes, we're, we're out on family vacation, and, and everyone's up before me, and they're eating breakfast, and, and then they, they come up, and, and they say, okay, breakfast is ready. You know, before you go out there, Something's different about you. Um, and just calm down with the Jesus stuff, all right? Um, it's just making people feel a little bit uncomfortable. And they walked out and went to breakfast, and I stayed, laid there in bed and got my thoughts together, and I thought, this is it. <laughs> this is real, right? Uh, a couple months ago, this was not me at all. I couldn't even open up the Bible to save my life, and now I can't help but tell everyone about it, and people are actually saying it's too much. Jesus, thank you, I love you. And I went out to breakfast and I told them about Jesus and it was awkward and it was great. And Jesus is telling us here in Ephesians, don't ever stop that. Don't abandon that first love. Don't ever buy into the lie that as you mature in your faith, that seems to go away and you get a little bit more balanced. No. Be weird and zealous, and never abandon the love that you have. Tell people about what you've experienced in Christ and love others by telling them about the love of God for them in Christ. I think that's part of his help for them here, right? Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. When couples come to me who have been married for a number of years and uh, they're struggling in their marriage and they, they want help, you know, they, 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 they don't want things to fall apart. 
Usually, one of the first things you can do, and this is very helpful, at least you know when you're talking to the guy one-on-one or when you're talking to the wife one-on-one, well, what was it that you loved about them in the first place? Remember that. I mean, what got you to the place where you could walk down the aisle with joy and love and say, yes, I will spend the rest of my life with you? Can you remember that? And even just going through that practice, what does that do? It, oh, it brings a smile to their face. And they, at first, they don't want to because they're so mad at what happened this past month. Yeah, that, that was fun. I remember we went on these dates. and Oh, yeah, before this happened, oh, we had so much fun doing that. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. Have you lost a desire to evangelize? Have you, have you lost a love to go out and just awkwardly come up to people in the grocery store and talk to them about Jesus Christ? Remember what it was like when you first came to know him, when you were first in love with him. Are you not still the bride of Christ? Do you not still love Jesus Christ? I'll grow and remember that first love and grow even more in that love and watch the effects of that as you go out as a lampstand in a dark world. Perhaps you're here this morning as somebody who can't remember. Perhaps you're here as somebody who doesn't see the point of being a lampstand and telling others about Christ. I would submit to you that Perhaps you are here this morning as someone who has never known and truly loved Christ and known the love of Jesus Christ. It is a clear pattern throughout Scripture that those who become the recipients of the love of Christ and by faith buy in to who Christ is and who Christ is for them, things change. The Samaritan woman at the well, at the end of chapter 4, What is she doing? But she's going back into her village and she's telling everybody about this prophet who is the Messiah and I believe in him. And she says, come and look at him. Do you remember the the demoniac in Mark uh, chapter 5 who's bound with chains in the cemetery and he cries out night and day because he's filled with a thousand demons and he cuts himself and Jesus comes and, and he releases him and frees him and saves him. And what does the demoniac do? He wants to go with him and go on his travels and tell other people about Jesus. Jesus says, no, stay here and do that. Time after time after time, the pattern is that those who come to contact and begin to love Jesus, they go out and they cannot help to call other people to love Jesus because the love is that amazing. And I submit to you, if you've never known that love, I submit to you, if you don't have a desire, you've never had a desire to go out and tell other people about Jesus Christ, perhaps you ought to reconsider and think, do I know and love and believe in Jesus Christ? And I'd encourage you. In fact, the text encourages us. Verse 5, repent and do the works you did at first. If you are an unbeliever, this is something you can repent of. You can repent of your unbelief and you can repent of your lack of love and you can repent of your lack of evangelizing and you can now go and begin to do the works that God has called you to do, the works that Mike read for us this morning, to go out to all the nations and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Repent before Christ comes back and makes every knee bow 
Join him now. Be somebody who's come here this morning and has thought for the first time, I need to love Jesus. And leave here this morning as someone who says, you know what? I think I really do love Jesus. Go home and and consider afresh the good news of Jesus Christ, that he left his Father in heaven and not only came to preach to us, but actually died on the cross for us so that we might be recipients of his love and love him afresh. For those of us who are believers, for those of us here at Greenboat Baptist Church who have perhaps abandoned our first love, the same call is for us, is it not? Repent and do the works that you did at first. Now, I want to lay out here perhaps a dichotomy, a false dichotomy that many have bought into and, uh, and perhaps many of you are assuming right now. And, and that false dichotomy is this. Many of us think, all right, I get the connection. They're in persecution. They're, 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 they're really concerned with doctrinal purity. They're theologically robust. So, of course, that's made them to be people who are not outwardly focused. They're inwardly focused on doctrine and theology. And the false dichotomy that, that, that's pretty much everywhere in today's culture is that those people who are convinced and, and super concerned with theology are de facto people who are never concerned with evangelism. Is that a false dichotomy that you've bought into? Theologically robust Christians or evangelically bankrupt Christians? And I want to submit to you that this passage here doesn't put that false dichotomy at all. Notice that Jesus never says, you've abandoned your love of evangelizing. Therefore, stop focusing on theology. Therefore, stop being so rigorous and robust in your concern for right doctrine and for the purity of the gospel. Because you've given yourself too much of that, and that's taken you away from evangelism. No, he doesn't do that, does he? He actually commends them. And again, this is a pattern throughout Scripture, that, that, that theology and, and robust understanding of the Bible and a right knowledge of doctrine can go hand in hand with evangelism and a love of Christ. And in fact, I, I would love to spend the rest of the afternoon telling you how actually this feeds this. The more I give myself to robustly wrestling through the intricacies and and, and the tough doctrines of Scripture and and seeing the beauty of God and His oneness and and triunity and then who God is described for us and all the doctrine of, of studying and loving God and theology, the more I'm actually stirred at the end of those times to go out and say, do you know about this God? I actually think that as we decrease in our theology, uh, we decrease in our evangelism. Maybe we keep up something called evangelism, but it's certainly not guided and grounded in the soil and the deep roots of a rich understanding of the Bible. So, church, I would submit that uh, we keep reading good books. We keep wrestling with the hard things in Sunday school. Keep coming to Bible study on Wednesday night where we, we wrestle with the tough doctrines. But Jesus' call to us here is to not just do that, but to use that as the fuel 
that lights the flame so that we can be a bright light to a dark world around us. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here's a call, not only to the Ephesian church, but to us, to overcome our laziness, or perhaps our fear in evangelizing. I would encourage you, church, to go home this afternoon and think, what can I do and what can we do to be a church who is more rooted and grounded in the love of Christ in order to be a church who is now more displaying and diffusing the love of Christ to the city of Greenbelt? Email me. I'll email us later this week and perhaps trying to think of other ways. I know conversations are happening. We have the 4th of July picnic coming up and, and what a time that would be to be a church where the whole city comes right by our church and, and to think, ha, we could be a light there talking with, with others as they walk by on the street to go see the fireworks just to talk to them about Christ. Is that what it means to be a light? Consider this passage as you go to the grocery store. Uh, there's the self-checkout. It's easier. Yes, there's a line, but I want to talk to that lady who's always at the same register and ask her if she goes to a good church. Ask her if she knows Jesus Christ. Are you taking any summer trips? You got to go on the airplane? It's good to bring books and read books on the airplane. But put it down and, and talk to the uh, person next to you. They have nowhere to go. <laughs> you can give them the gospel. Consider and think through ways in which we can not abandon our first love and be a light. Let us uh, conquer and overcome and the Lord will grant us to in the end eat the tree of life and be with him in the paradise of God. Let's pray.